Ain't Nothing Is Wasted family. First of all, I want to apologize for the poor audio recording that, that you're currently listening to. At the time of recording this, I am on vacation with my family and did not have access to one of our high quality microphones. Um, I wanted to jump on and let you know that this is going to be a little bit different nature of an episode of what we normally release. We had been scheduled to release our third birthday episode. And then given the events that have taken place in our country over the past week, week and a half or so, we didn't see, we didn't feel like it was appropriate to release that episode, and we decided to go in a, a different direction as a team this week. Um, if you're not familiar with uh, or you're listening to this uh, a lot further down the road, maybe several months later or years later, the events I'm referring to are the the death of George Floyd and the um, ensuing events, uh, protests, riots. And all of the different climatic changes in our country that aren't really changes at all. They're, they're more um, tensions that have been around for hundreds of years that are surfacing and kind of coming to a boiling point right now. And so in the spirit of listening and in the spirit of learning, we wanted to step back as a Nothing Is Wasted podcast team. And we wanted to pull out of the archives an interview that we had with one of the leading voices in the country today on racial reconciliation, Pastor Miles McPherson. We interviewed him in episode 33, so early on in the days of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. And we thought it very appropriate to re-release this interview because of uh, the nature of the interview and the topic of the interview, specifically surrounding racial reconciliation. Over the next couple of weeks, we hope to bring even more voices to the table who can speak from authority on this topic and can help us to learn and can help all of us to live, learn, and lead through this pain. I know many of you have been affected by this um, indirectly, and many of you have been affected by this uh, on a more closer front and more directly. And so we want each of you to know that our prayers are going out to you as you're trying to navigate this current crisis in our country. And we're hoping to provide you as much content as we possibly can um, to help you navigate this in a Christ-centered, biblically-based way, um, and in a way that really helps to bring everybody together um, in unity and um, in restoration. Um, That's what the Nothing Is Wasted podcast has always been about, is that no matter what is taking place in our lives and in our nation, uh, we believe that God wants to bring um, everything into restoration and everything into reconciliation, and that we as believers are to be agents of that reconciliation, whether it's um, reconciliation between us and God, whether it's reconciliation between us and each other. And so I really hope you enjoy this interview. I hope you glean a lot from it. I know I certainly have, and I know that I'll be taking. Uh, the next several weeks to really step back and try to learn as much as I possibly can on what my role is and how I can play a part and how we as a community can play a part in racial reconciliation. Pastor Miles, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you? It is my pleasure, man. It's good to hear your voice again, as we talked about a year and a half ago. So yeah. good to be here. Well, yeah, we got connected uh, when you were doing some research for a project that you now have 
you're birthing this project, which is just a, a cool thing to see. Releasing this book, The Third Option, uh, this coming Tuesday, as the listener is going to be hearing this on a Thursday. They're, you're releasing it September 11th, and that, that's just exciting. I'm so excited about it. It's been almost about a year and three quarters waiting, working, worrying, stressing, yeah. and it's finally here. Well, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of context? So where are you? Tell me a little bit about your family. What do you do? Just a little bit of, of the background of Miles McPherson. Yeah, I'm a pastor, a husband, father, grandfather. I grew up in New York, played four years uh, in the NFL with the San Diego Chargers. I was originally drafted by the Los Angeles Rams and got cut, which means I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to play for the Chargers four years. I have a brother who played NFL. He was a Heisman runner-up in 1987. I have another brother who was an eighth-ranked boxer. Um, and then two sisters, they weren't athletic. Um, and then I got drafted by the Rams, got cut, went and played for the Chargers four years. Hmm. Um, first two years, I was doing cocaine and smoking marijuana and chasing women. And then, um, I got saved. I was five o'clock in the morning. One day I was laying on my couch at five o'clock in the morning. I had been doing cocaine all night and I had even brought cocaine on the team plane. Wow. Um, my teammate was doing crack. I went to a crack house and watched him do crack. And so I was a mess and five o'clock in the morning, April 12th, 1984. I just said, Lord, I can't do this anymore. And, and stop that day. Wow. I never did cocaine again, never smoked marijuana. And my girlfriend and I got back together and we got married uh, that September. Wow. September 11th. Matter of fact, our anniversary is September 11th, get same day as book release. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So so then you, you uh, at some point, felt called to, to ministry. I mean, talk to me about what that journey looked like coming from this, you know, ath- athletic drug background, and then you're moving into a place where you feel like God's calling you to pastor a church. What, what happened there? Yeah. And I'll tell you, as I tell this part of the story, a lot of your listeners, um, God has a call on your life and gifting that you may not know. And I had no idea that I was supposed to speak to people mm. in, in, in front of people. And when the charges would ask me to go speak at like a junior high or something, I said, look, I'm not a speaker. You know, I'll go take aut- sign autograph, take pictures, but I don't speak in front of crowds. And then God showed me that that's what he designed me for. And I started sharing my testimony at prisons and schools and churches and and realized um, I loved it. And mm. so I started a Bible study in my house with some kids in my neighborhood. And we had nine nationalities in my house. Wow. And then I became the youth pastor and it was diverse as San Diego. And, and then, you know, 16 years later, we started the church and it's been diverse since day one. Wow. Uh, but I just started sharing my story and got discipled by guys on the team. And, but one thing led to another and I started, you know, lear- realizing that God gave me the gift of gab for his <laughs> glory, <laughs> you know, for his glory. So, and that's how I got into ministry, just sharing the gospel. That's awesome. That's awesome. When you, you just brought up this topic of diversity and, you know, the idea of, of uh, mixing of races in the midst of all of this ministry that you're doing. And this is what you wrote this book on, The Third Option, right? Uh, it's a, a conversation about racial reconciliation. What what was the impetus behind this? I'm sure as you're doing ministry like this, you're seeing all kinds of um, circumstances and, and things happening. What was the impetus behind writing this book? Yeah, you know, if I go back to when I was a child, I grew up 
I have a, uh, all my grandparents are from Jamaica and my two grandfathers are black and my one grandmother's white and one grandmother's half Chinese, but I'm black. <laughs> I just in a white neighborhood, so I got called names by the white kids because I wasn't white enough. Mm. Got called names by the black kids because I wasn't black enough. And uh, had wow. playing football, playing football, you're around all kind of kids, and that's where you have family. Yeah, uh, on, in the locker room. And so my whole my family was diverse. We, you know, we had all these different shades of brown, and my white grandmother who was ostracized by her family when she married my grandfather. So we never knew her family, even though they lived 15 minutes away. And so that was my upbringing. When I started the church, I was so used to being around a lot of different kind of people. And our church was diverse. Uh, I saw every day and still do see every day, you know, dozens and dozens of different ethnicities get along. Yet the country's divided. Yeah. And it would break my heart especially having played football and you, you know, your, your brothers are white and black, Hispanic or whoever's on the team. Those are your brothers. And yet you see the country being torn apart and it was just breaking my heart. So when I got the opportunity to write a book, uh, I actually, the, the book I originally intended to write only had one chapter on racism. And that was a chapter I wrote as the proposal. Hmm. And I, as I was writing it, I was like, man, I wish I could write a whole book on this. And, and the publisher said, can you write a whole book on it? So I said, <laughs> yes, and that's how it started. And the reason, you know, the reason is I wanted to give people tools to get along. The book is about honor, mm. how we can honor each other. And I wanted to equip people on how to express honor one to another. Mm. That's amazing. You, you know, you've got this, your family that is seemingly, you know, very, very diverse. And um, it's not making sense to you as you're looking at the world. Uh, that's that seems to especially not even just the world, but like the church sometimes is the most racially divided, you know, um, organization in the in the world. Oftentimes, you know, and we we hear this this phrase often that Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week in the church. But it sounds like you grew up in a church that was very racially diverse was having that conversation already. Is that, is that true? Does that kind of inform some of your background, your, your thought process behind a lot of this as well? Well, the church I went to from first to eighth grade was a Catholic school and it was not diverse. Okay. Um, uh, it was predominantly white. It was in a white neighborhood where blacks could not live. Mm. Um, it just happened to be two minutes from my house. And when I came back over a certain street, uh, I was in my neighborhood, which was all black. However, the, the church that I pastor has always been diverse. Um, so my family was diverse. My football teams were diverse. And then my church and Bible study, even before the church, the Bible study I had at my house with teenagers was diverse. Hmm. And so everything that was coming out of my life was diverse, yet I was seeing a divided country. Hmm. And um, it, it was just, it, it was breaking my heart, you know, when I was a kid because I lived in two worlds. Right. And so it's, it's been um, a burden my whole life and to see my grandparents and my parents deal with all the stuff they dealt with. Um, and, you know, you're watching television. And uh, when I was younger, it was black and white TV, but it was really never, there was no black on it. It was yeah. just white. Yeah. So, you know, my upbringing was so different than today. Uh, so, you know, you lived with that all your life. But by the time I started the church here in San Diego in 2000, we had a diverse and still do have a very diverse uh, congregation. Mm. Leadership is diverse. 
And so I know and knew it can, it could work. And it was how can we get a message and how can I write a message that can speak to the general public uh, throughout the nation? So, so have you had to be, I mean, there's a certain level of intentionality that goes into that. And if you're, you know, as a pastor, we think about this a lot, like what does it look like for us, our church to reflect the kingdom of God, right? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so many people want that, but uh, it sounds like there needs to be a certain level of intentionality behind that. Why, why is that? Why do we have to be, you know, I would think it would just be like, Hey, if we're just sharing the gospel and we're just, you know, talking about, um, the message of the gospel, then, then it's going to draw everybody. But w- what is it that, what are the barriers? What are the walls that are keeping our churches, um, you know, unilateral, <laughs> unidimensional? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, I would, I would, uh, anyone listen who goes to church, um, they would have to ask why they go to the church they go to, you know, in my book, the third option, one of the things that I write about is, um, the fact that we, group ourselves with people like us Mm. and like us could be profession. It could be age. It could be music style, or it could be what we look like. And, you know, people like to go to a place where they're around people who look like them or have something in common. It just so happens at our church, the what's most common is, you know, I guess the, the, the worship, the the presence of God in the ministry, what the Lord's Mm. doing, I, I assume. But, um, uh, but yeah, nine, eight, 97% of churches are monolithic. They look, there's one major 80%, 80 plus percent of the same ethnicity. Um, and, and that should change because, you know, the world's looking at the church to lead on loving and forgiving people and uh, loving your, your enemies and your, and everyone being your neighbor yet it, we segregate on Sunday morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think as a reflection of like, you know, obviously not the church collective, but like us as Christians individually, maybe we, um, don't have the prejudice or overt prejudice nature in our, in our hearts. And yet at the same time, we still find ourselves grouping with like-minded people because it's just default, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I think the biggest aha I've learned writing this book in is that you can be racially offensive and not be a racist. And I, and mm-hmm. whenever I, whenever you come, whenever you talk about racism, people get so, you know, tense because they don't want to be called a racist, but you can be racially offensive. And that includes a hundred percent of people because we're all flawed. We're not perfect mm-hmm. because the, the, you know, the third option is, there's many third options, but one of them is that you're either a racist or you're not. But really the third option is that you're biased. You're not necessarily a racist, but you're still biased. And there's things about hmm. people you don't understand. And there are offensive things that you do say, think that uh, you wouldn't do say or think if you learned a few things about yourself or other people. And so this book is about equipping people with tools on how to be honoring. It's not about not being a racist. It's about being honoring because you mm-hmm. can avoid, avoid something and then make another mistake. And, and, but how can I be honoring to people? Uh, e- even the whole language of tolerance. I don't want you to tolerate me. I want you to love me. Hmm. And so, you know, it's like saying to your wife, I'm going to tolerate you. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just doesn't work. You, you don't want to marry someone you tolerate. You want to marry someone that you want to be with and that you honor and respect and love. Mm. And so this book is about how can I come to honor 
and um, love people that are different, have nothing to do with me. Maybe I'm today I'm scared of I'm, or I'm ignorant of or people that I that I've labeled those people. Mm. Um, you know, we need to learn to honor and love them. And, and so this book is to give people tools on how to do that. And the first tool is to accept that you can be offensive and offensive means that you say something very innocently and even thinking you're making a compliment, mm. but it, it rubs somebody wrong because you don't know Well, you need to know and mm. you need to not say it. And, and, and so this book is about helping people learn what those tools are, but they first have to accept that they can't potentially be offensive. You know, if you deny the possibility of being offensive, you will deny the opportunity to learn how to be honoring. Mm. And so that's the first major step of the book. That's great. I love it because, you know, Romans 12 talks about outdoing one another with honor. And and what if that was the case for, um, for all of us as followers of Jesus, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter the race, but that we're outdoing one another with honor. When I think about that, like, I love the parallel you just made with your wife. It's kind of easy to think about the idea of relationship with someone that you love, like your spouse, that honor to me with my spouse means I'm doing whatever I can to step over that gap, to step over the bridge of misunderstanding and try to understand the other side. Is that what you're seeing is probably a a remedy in this conversation? Is this, is this how we, how do we get to this place where we are honoring of each other? Exactly. I think the first step of honoring other people is first to honor yourself. And what mm. I mean by that, there's a story in Joshua uh, five, where Joshua is leading the Israelites into the promised land. And he is, he's going to fight the Canaanite, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Uptites and Anasites. And, <laughs> And he's confronted by the command of the Lord's army. And he says to the command of the Lord's army, are you for us or our adversaries? Mm. You, is one or the other. You have to pick. There's only two options. And culture gives us two options. It's either us or them. So it pits you. It pits us against somebody. Yeah. And the command of the Lord's army says, no, I'm not for either one of you. I am the side. I'm the third option. And mm. the third option is that we honor what we have in common, which is the image of God. Well, I have the same image of God that you have. I've been made in the same image. Mm. It's not inferior or superior. So the first thing I have to do is acknowledge that I was me. I have a responsibility to live up to the potential God has given me to love you, to honor you, to respect you, to forgive you, to speak life to you, to live in harmony with you. That's my responsibility. So the first thing I need to do is figure out what ways I'm not doing that. And, you know, if, if I'm scared of you or if I have negative assumptions about you or I believe I believe stereotypes about you, I can no longer honor you. So I have to deal with myself. Mm. And so the book, the first 11 chapters of 18 are all about me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the, it's, it's broken up to three parts. Me, you, we. And the first 11 is all about me. Wow. And. And so the first thing I have to do is I got to I got to check my heart and I have to place a priceless value, which is to honor something, place a priceless value on my ability to reflect God's heart towards you. And I got to figure that out uh, first and then I can start then I could start doing things that uh, I've written about toward you to be honoring towards you. Mm. 
Gotcha. So you've got 11 chapters on this me part. It's interesting. Cause <laughs> take the, take the, you know, plank out of your own eye before you point out the speck on somebody else's eye. Um, what, what are, what else is there in that honoring side of things? If we camp there for a little bit, when it comes to me, what do I need to look at? What, I, what do I need to be introspective and self-reflective about when it comes to how I view other people? What else do you write about in that? Good. Um, that I love people correctly. The Bible says that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And when we re, when we label people something less than neighbor, we give ourselves um, permission, biblical permission to not love them because they're not a neighbor. Hmm. And for example, you know, we have all the names we call black people, white people, Hispanic people, uh, Middle Eastern people. We got all our little, our little slurs that we call them and, and that the media calls them and that we adopt. Once you label someone something less than your neighbor, your brother, your sister, you attribute to them all the characteristics of that negative label. Therefore, they are no longer your equal. They're somewhat subhuman and you, you now know it's so much easier now for you to accept them to be treated unfairly because they're not at your level. Uh, you have given yourself um, subconscious permission to not have to be nice to them because they're not, they're not at your level, that they're, they're not your brother, your neighbor, your sister. And, and then you go to your friends, those people who you consider your neighbor and you love them and you feel like I'm good because I'm mm-hmm. loving somebody. But really, you just you just giving yourself permission to violate the number two commandment. And so the first thing we have to do is get rid of the title, those people. Never say that and see everybody as your neighbor, your brother, your sister, and then treat them accordingly. Uh, the other thing is get rid of fear. I mean, we fear people uh, based on stuff we heard. Mm. Um, there was a lady who told me as I was writing this book, she told me, why can't I get over it? So I said, you know what? You need to go someplace where you're the only, she was a white lady. You need to go someplace where you're the only white person. Hmm. So I wrote a form, a a little, it's in the book. Uh, It's called Walk in My Shoes Field Trip. And Hmm. it's a, it's a like eight questions. What did you, for a person who does this? So I said, what is it, what does it feel like when I ask you to go someplace where you would be the only white person? What, what did you feel like when you were going? What, what happened when you were there? How did the people treat you? Mm. Uh, did what you fear would happen? Did it ever happen? Had it ever happened before? And four of the six people did it. Two of the people who didn't do it, grown men, they just said they wouldn't do it. And he said, even if I went to a black church, I'd feel like I want to leave right away. Mm. Well, well, if that's how you feel about people, how can you honor them? Yeah. And, and what is it based on? Is it based on something that happened to you? Is it based on something that happens to you every time you met somebody who looked like that? I mean, where did you get that from? Mm. And often we get our information from the media and from anecdotes and we, and it's very uh, flawed information and it's very limited information. Um, and, and it's very condescending. And so when you uh, uh, place those kind of assumptions on uh, groups of people, you are cutting yourself off from them and there's no way you can honor or love them. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really good. That idea, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, I've, it's interesting. It, it's, um, I feel like there is the ability for us to love our neighbors comes from an ability to accept 
um, in wholeness who God has made us to be as well. Because love your neighbor as you love yourself, as yourself. It's not that you're loving yourself in the sense, you know, you're, you're self-absorbed, self... No, no, no. It's that you are whole as a person, that there's not a brokenness inside of you that's causing a skewed perspective of other people who are different than you. But you realize, I'm a child of God. Everybody else is around me also a child of God. And so it allows me to honor other people. Miles, I, I, um, my wife is half Asian and, um, she had a similar experience growing up. She went to a very, like pretty much all white school on the South side of Indianapolis in high school. And she was constantly, uh, derided because of her race. And she was, you know, only half Asian. And yet then she also spent some time over in Cambodia and she stuck out like a sore thumb as she was doing missions work in Cambodia. And I, she's, she's talked about before that she's always felt like she's never fit in. She's never mm. belonged anywhere because she's not like what you said earlier. You're, you're too white for the black people, too black for the white people. And I think there's this sense of that every single one of us want to belong to each other. And sometimes out of that, we can tend to group ourselves with other people and then pit ourselves against other people as, you know, as well. But this sense of belonging comes only from Christ, only from God and the wholeness that he can create inside of our own heart through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then out of that, we're able to love our neighbor and forgive and be reconciled to each other. And um, I just think, you know, I think that's, that's an important conversation with the church and with people. Yeah, and, and people have to realize that God made those people and loves those people just the same, and he made those people in exactly the same image yeah. that he's made them in. Uh, and when we're in love with God, you know, First John tells us we can't love God who we haven't seen and, and hate our neighbor yeah. who we have seen. And so we have to stop and go, okay, who are the people I have problem with and why? Mm. How, how do I deal with my fear? How do I deal with my ignorance? How do I learn my blind spots? There's things about myself I don't know. And, you know, if, if everybody listened in this one up to somebody who was different than them and said, is, and asked them, is there something I do that's offensive to you? I mean, that's a powerful hmm. question and get ready for the answer. But if you really want to learn about your biases, remember, it doesn't make you a racist. It just means that you say things that are offensive. It's, it's almost like if you ask all uh, guys or ask women, do I do anything to offend you as a woman? Hmm. You, you might you might realize that there's some things you do and say that that rub women wrong, but they've never said anything to you. It doesn't necessarily make you a chauvinist but it will make you help you be more loving. And that's what we should do as far as race goes. And um, so we, we have to go back. Just the first step is to deal with me. Deal with me. All right. So after the first 11 chapters, you then transition to the you side of things. What does that look like? What does it mean to deal with you then? You know, every time you look at someone and even think about someone, but especially when you look at someone and have a conversation, you are having a race conversation. Mm. It doesn't matter what they look like. They can look exactly like you, but as soon as you see someone and their clothes and, and if they speak their voice, the more you interact with them, the more you are having a race conversation because your brain is processing that information without you even knowing it. It's subconscious. Mm. And you are making assumptions about them based on how they look, how they dress, how they walk, um, their, their, uh, how they talk. 
And but the problem is that that those assumptions are based on limited information. Now, the, when I say limited information, it's information that you've gathered all your life. But what you don't know is that person. Hmm. And so you may make assumptions, but you need to allow it to be a race consultation. So every race conversation yeah. should be a race consultation. Allow the person to self-disclose what their dreams are, their pain, why they do what they do, why they dress the way they dress, why they talk the way they talk. Let them self-disclose to you who they are before you come to a, a conclusion. Now, you may have assumptions, great, mm. but hold, hold those assumptions and let them be challenged by the person's self-disclosure. And so if I met your wife, you know, I may, I may think she's Chinese and white, but she may be Vietnamese and white. She may be Korean. She may she may she may be Korean and Italian. I don't know, right? Uh, but but and, she gets and, that question I'm, a lot. Where, where are you from? She's like, I'm from exactly. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And but she probably has a fascinating story. Yeah. But if she said she was, is she Chinese and white? No, she's Korean. Korean and white. Oh, she's Korean white. Yeah. Okay. So, so her mom grew up in an orphan. First ten years of her mom's life was in a Korean orphanage, and then she was adopted oh. by an American family. Oh my god! Brought over the states. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. I mean, she has a fascinating story. Yeah. Instead of assuming, oh, you're probably good at math, and you, you know, you probably really, you know, instead of making all these assumptions, which she is. I'll, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes some of the assumptions we make are true. Yeah. However, we, you know, as you know, you can use those, those assumptions can lead to offensive comments, yeah, but right. you let people self-disclose, mm -hmm. uh, and, and learn about people, you know, um, so I, I think a lot of us are looking at people do things on television and looking at people do things in the media or and, and we assume things about them when we don't even know them and we yeah. don't even know anyone like them. Mm -hmm. and, and so we make all these assumptions. Yeah. Wow. Isn't this just like almost, you know, interpersonal relationships 101, though, you know, it's, it's amazing how this is kind of stuff that, you know, we look, we talk about when it comes to just how to how to deal with your friends and your coworkers and anybody that you maybe have a uh, you, you have tension between it's it's coming to the table um, allowing someone to disclose rather than bringing assumptions or presumptions to the table it's allowing them to really disclose themselves and not filling in these gaps with your own story but really allowing them to to you know um, like what you just said disclose of themselves. Why is it that it that the race almost adds the race factor in this adds like fuel to the fire? What is it about this race conversation that maybe since the beginning of time this has just been a hotbed of a of a topic for us? Yeah, I think in America again racism is everywhere on the planet. Mm -hmm. It is it is about one group wanting to feel superior over another group. And then the the oppressed group fighting back, and then you have tension. So uh, it's everywhere in the world. So let me first say that, and and it, it applies to every single person in some form or fashion. Um, in America, you know, it, uh, it's the history goes back really to the beginning, um, uh, but it's so easy for me to want to be on the in the group that's in power. 
And then mm-hmm. if I'm oppressed, I'm, of course, fighting for freedom. And now right. you have, you know, you're pitted one against another. That's why the book's the third option, because mm-hmm. the, the culture says you have to be on one side or the other. The third option says, why can't we be together? Why can't we honor mm-hmm. one another? And but it's so easy and convenient to stay with my group. Um, and have good reasons slash assumptions why I don't need to deal with it. I don't want to go over that side because they don't like me anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it's so much easier to be around your own and around people who believe what you believe and, and reinforce what you've been told. And, and it's easy not to have your beliefs challenged by other people. Mm-hmm. What would you say, like, if, you know, I'm, I'm white and, and I want to try to bridge those, um, that gap with relationships that I have. Uh, I want to deconstruct the biases that I have, but I am intimidated. What would you say are some practical things that I can do in regards to this you side of things? Like, what do I, what do I do practically to really try to, if I have a friend who is black and I'm trying to understand, you know, their, their perspective or their side of things, their viewpoint, their, um, their vantage point of the world. How do I do that? Especially if I'm intimidated, you know, especially if like there's, because this is such a hot conversation, it can cause some intimidation around that. Yeah. In, in my book, the third option, the chapter on, co- um, c- uh, color coded conversations, right. That, um, if, if you have a friend that you have a very open, honest conversation and say, I want to learn, mm-hmm. And I, I need permission from you to learn and, and make mistakes in our conversations as I learn. Mm. And, and I would love to talk to you about things I don't understand. I would love to talk to you about questions I have because I want to be more honoring and loving of you. Now, internally, privately, I would ask and challenge people to think about what are the biases they have? What are the things that they believe about other people that are different? And if they can identify those things, some of those biases they have can lead to questions they could ask Mm. or things they never want to tell anybody. (laughs) But, you know, at least they can know, man, I'm scared of these kind of people. I wonder, uh, you know, do these people hate me? And and, but those are really just having an honest conversation slash relationship with someone because everything's going to be done in the context of relationship. We were made for a relationship. Mm. And when you, when you walk with somebody, I have, I have two chapters on blind spots and one of the blind spots, I think I, I, um, list nine of them, but one of the blind spots, and by the way, a blind spot is where you have a difference between what you intend to do or be mm. and what you actually do. Mm. For example, you may say, I love all people and I don't see color and I treat everybody the same. And then you go up to someone and say, I don't see color. Well, your intent is to love everybody the same. But when you say you don't see color, you just offended that person. Right, right. And so the impact of what you did was offensive, even though your intent was to develop a relationship. Mm. And the reason it's offensive is because you do see color. That's the only reason you said you don't. Uh, because... Wow. <laughs> you, you don't say you don't see color when you're with people that are like you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's offensive because God made the color uh, and he made it to be to as something beautiful. So who are we to say we're going to ignore it? Mm. Uh, and, and think about it this way. When people go to Hawaii, they get a tan. 
they want everybody to see it. But when yeah. someone get so and they want the, the tan that people get in Hawaii is celebrated. The tan that people get in the womb is invalidated. Mm. And so it's so convenient to say, I don't see your tan because you were born with it. But when I go to Hawaii, I want you to see it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so so I think people if people could have honest relationships and conversations with people who are different and and be very upfront. Listen, I want to learn. I need to be more honoring. Tell me how I'm not honoring. Uh, take your time. And if you know two or three people who are Mexican or black or Asian, don't think now you know all people who are black, Mexican, mm -hmm. Asian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you meet people and say, oh, I have a black friend. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. <laughs> and, 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 and it's kind of like saying, now I know all black people, right? Right, right. Uh, but, you know, just t um, be honest about what you don't know, mm. at least to yourself and walk in humility as a learner of other people. Mm. What would you say to somebody, you know, let's say they're coming to you as their pastor, or let's say, for instance, me. I'm coming to you seeking your pastoring and your counsel in this. Someone who has been offended by um, somebody else, and it begins to translate into assuming that all people like that person are going to hurt me. So I'll give you a case in point. I don't feel like personally, Pastor Miles, I struggled with any kind of ra racism, racial prejudice. I'm sure I had some biases before my wife, my late wife Amanda was killed. But when three black men were arrested, um, all of a sudden I had to start dealing with some of the racism that began to erupt in my heart because then every time I saw um, a black teenager that fit quote unquote, the construct or profile that one of these three men fit, there was this like rage that I, that came up inside of my heart because of what had been done to me and to my wife. And that person that I saw just random person walking down the street may have nothing to do with any of that. But because of that, I've had to rest, I had to wrestle through some feelings of racial prejudice. And, and how, how would you, I don't think this is just a race conversation, you know, some women, they've been mistreated by men. And so then it, they, they put the presumption or assumption onto all men. Well, all men are like this because of that, you know, it becomes this blanket thing. How would you pastor me in this moment? If I'm coming to you and I'm saying, Hey, I'm struggling, pastor miles. Like I, I don't want to see everyone like this, but this has been done to me and my heart is hurt now. I've been a victim of this. How do I see past this? You know, that's a great question. Number one, I can't imagine that pain. Um, so I'll speak, I'll give you examples, but first let me acknowledge that none of it is to the degree you have suffered. And I, and I, I mean, what you went through is a, is a person's worst nightmare. Mm. Um, number one, number, and, and I feel for you, I've been praying for you, man. Mm. <laughs> my, my wife and I were praying for you the other day. I was telling about this podcast and I was showing her pictures of you and your family mm. and she was just broken hearted. Um, and when something like that happens, it's, it's traumatic yeah. and you've been, you've been emotionally scarred, you've been mentally scarred. And so it's natural for you to have that pain and, and those memories pop up. Um, so the examples I'm going to give you are no way to minimize what right, you went right. through. Okay. Um, uh, so number one, I would say, yes, I understand that you have to continue to pray and think logically that the the three people 
that did it uh, or what those three people did. Right. You also have, I would assume, relationships with a lot of, a way more than three people who right. are black that aren't that. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And and also, you know, if you take all the, I mean, my in my life again, not to compare, but in my life, I've dealt with garbage from by thousands of white people, mm. right? <laughs> and nothing like what you went through, but just all kind of devious stuff. Yeah. But I also know that that was those individuals and you have to fight with assuming here comes another one, mm-hmm. you know, and, and here comes another comment and another this and another that. And that's what everybody to some degree deal with all the time when it's something like yours that's so traumatic. Um, it's going to take longer to get over that. But I think logically knowing, listen, I know I, if there's three guys who did that, I know 3,000 that right. are of the opposite and exactly. focus on those people who are loving and encouraging and forgiving. And, you know what I'm saying? Yep, absolutely. That's good. That's really good. So um, we've talked about the you aspect of things. Take me now to the conversation of we. What does that look like? In a bigger, the bigger narrative is relationships that we have to walk together. Um, I have a, a chapter on the police and the police and people in the community mm. uh, working together. Uh, the, the the last chapter, I think it's the last chapter is on, or the second to last chapter, My Brother's Keeper. This chapter is about black people challenging black people to honor white people, mm. challenging white people to honor the people I have influence over the people that are close to me that I now, we all need to hold each other accountable. Um, there's a, is a African-American friend of mine and, and he has issue with white people because he's had stuff happen to him all his life. Yeah. Like all, like all right, of, us have, of course. Right? Yeah. And he's bitter. And I said, brother, I get it. I get it. However, that doesn't give you license to violate the greatest commandment. Mm. And so, so let's talk. And so now I'm holding him accountable and challenging him. Uh, there was a story in the book about uh, raising your kids. If you, if you model to your kids that you're only around people like you and you, and you model to them that everyone else is not important, mm that you can actually be fine without having any interracial relationships. Um, and uh, let me see, let me say it this way, that your life will not be enriched by people who are different. Mm, wow. You are, you are sending a message to the kids that, or the people in the younger people in your life who you influence, uh, a, a very negative message. And so how can I influence positively the people in my life to be more honoring mm. and hold them accountable? Yeah. That's so good. It's almost like on some level, you you know, as someone who is white, you can't, uh, it's more effective. It sounds like what you're saying. It's more effective for me to really um, have the conversation of influence with someone who is like me, who is white, to, to really instruct and um, mentor them not to see the other side the way they've been, you know, the way they've been skewed to see it. And likewise, you instructing one of your brothers to do it as well. Right. So my, my brother, I'm saying, Hey man, don't, the way you're viewing things, the way you're seeing things, I know you've been hurt. It's easier for me to do that because it's not me pointing as a white 
you know, male pointing to a black male and saying, Hey, you need to, you need to, you need to, right. It's almost like that doesn't do anything for the conversation. I feel like that where oftentimes that's where this conversation has escalated sometimes into violence is when we're pointing fingers at the other side saying, this is what you need to do as opposed to taking like our own ownership of, no, this is what we need to do. We need to help to bridge this by, um, creating a new narrative inside of our own, you know, our own race in order for us to have, like you said, enriching relationships with people who are of a different race and a different color. Exactly. And, and you know, we have leverage with people who are like us. Right. We have those private conversations behind closed doors with people who are like us. That's where the, the real conversations, honest comments are made. And that's where change can happen. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Miles, some would say um, that the racial divide in our country is getting worse. And some would say it's not. But what, what, would, you, what would you say? Do you think that we're moving in the right direction? Do you think that the church is right now currently having a positive influence in the racial divide in our country as a whole? I mean, what do you see as the landscape of it right now? I, I think it is getting worse. I think people who are, who in the past would say nothing are now being more vocal. Mm. Um, I think the church, uh, you know, we're having a simulcast event on September 15th and to talk about this. Oh, and cool. we have about 200 churches that are signed up. Um, to have this conversation on September 15th is a Saturday. The book comes out September 11th. And the, the interest in something like this, I think, is high now because of um, the division in culture. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, I think it's getting worse. And two, in the second sense, I think it's causing people to say, we got to do something. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think two or three years ago, there wouldn't be this many churches saying, I want to have this conversation. Um, and they can get information about that at milesofpearson.com about okay. the book of the release. And they can also go to Amazon and get the book, which I would encourage people to do. But, right. um, the race for unity event on September 15th is we're going to, um, simulcast it free online to talk about all this and even demonstrate how to have a conversation mm. in a small group. We're going to give demonstration on that. But I think that in culture, it, it's, it's, it's getting worse. However, I think a lot of times the devil overplays his hand and he wears people out with sin. And that's why we get saved because we just get so tired of being yeah. hung over all the time. Right. So I think, I think we're at the point where culture is saying we have to do something. Mm. And, and that's why I think this book is going to be valuable because people are like, can, I need it. Some, something that's going to be practical that will give me practical tools on how to be honoring practical tools on how to love people and get to know people and approach people. And so uh, that's why I'm excited about this book, The Third Option. That's great. Well, the book is called, again, The Third Option. Pastor Miles McPherson comes out September 11th. Um, and uh, I know it's going to help a lot of people. I, I appreciate you stepping into this conversation, Pastor Miles. This has been really, really helpful. And I appreciate you. And, and like I said, if they they go to Amazon and get The Third Option um, and and do the book, every yeah. chapter has next steps do the book. And That's great. It'll change your life. I feel like this is one of those books you can't just sit and absorb. You got to actually, you got to walk it out. You got to practice it, it, you know? Got to walk it out. Got to walk it out. I love it. Hey, thanks so much for spending time with me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 